out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastorp. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, singer-songwriter, journalist, author, vocalist, piano player, drummer. Yes, it's the one and only Max Descharnay, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Um, member of the Blaming Stars, Earls Earls of Suave, Gallon Drunk, and also worked with Nikki Sudden. So, this is the interview. We're not going to do too much chat now, because frankly, you don't need to worry. But after several minutes of casual chat that got deleted or edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Max, tell us everything. Tell us now. It's sort of mid-60s stuff really uh mostly what whatever got on television or what was on the radio a lot uh so uh things like the monkeys you know they were you know they had great tunes and they were on tv and then you know watching top of the pop so you you just you would see i'm old enough to remember you know oh that's the new rolling Stones single or that's the new beatles single or his you know what just whatever was around at the time uh, but in terms of buying records, yeah, it's uh, T-Rex, David Bowie, um, Mother Hoople, Roxy Music, um, Slade, uh, those kind of people. And trying to, because I, I play the drums and I play piano. Yes. And every, uh, I used to play the drums before I had a drum kit. You know, you'd get bits of furniture, you know, plastic stools and things like that and play along to Top of the Pops when I was about seven years old. Nice. Wishing I had a drum kit, basically, but seeing if I could accompany um, whoever. Years, years later, I once met, had the pleasure of meeting uh, Bill Legend, uh, the drummer from T-Rex, and uh, so it was great to be able to say to him, look, I learned to play drums playing along with you, you know, what you were doing on T-Rex singles. Um, so, yeah, stuff like that. Plus... Uh, in parallel with that um, 50s rock and roll stuff that was always very big in in my household my parents loved that stuff so you know the BBC would occasionally show things like you know the Bill Haley rock around the clock film or or jailhouse rock or whatever so uh, that always sounded good to me so yes. playing the piano, playing the piano um, they always try and teach you classical music that's what they start you off on but uh, at a very impressionable age, seeing Jerry Lee Lewis on the television playing the piano with um, his fists, with his elbows, and with his feet, that made me think, ah, there's another way to do this. Basically. Well, absolutely, um, yes. Well, it was interesting because yeah. because um, both David Bowie and Lemmy, <laughs> who were the same, born in the same year, and who I love both, yeah. um, they they'd always say they're, they're they're the sort of first person they would mention is Little Richard because they said oh, sure. that just yeah. changed their lives from, from yeah. then on. So, yes, and I guess being a keyboard player and a wild style, it must have, uh, seeing little clips of that must have also been quite influential. Absolutely stunning. Uh, the the, uh, the film, The Girl Can't Help It, I mean, thank God they shot that in colour and cinemascope in 1956 and they got hold of Little Richard and Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran. Uh, you know, I mean, just when they were all first having hits. Um stunning uh i don't know if you've ever been to uh, in new orleans um what is now a laundrette 
uh, is the old, what used to be called the, the J&M Music Store. It's Cosimo Matassa's studio, and that's where he recorded Little Richard and Fats Domino and Smiley Lewis. And, uh, you know, so you stand in this laundrette. I was there a few years ago. Uh, while people are doing their washing, and you're thinking, this is where Keep a Knocking and all of that was recorded. It's absolutely surreal. <laughs> uh, very um, surreal, actually. It must have been yeah. very strange. And were you, so were your parents then sort of quite hip to the trip then? Uh, the... They were rockers, yeah. I mean, my dad was a... Um, you, you know, or a... a what a sort of motorbike hooligan looked like in this country in the 50s, so sort of black, you know, complete black leather and, and a big Triumph motorbike uh, running around. That's what, that's what with, with slick back hair, that's what he was. And uh, him and my mum were both into rock and roll. They were both the right age for it. And that's what they would go dancing to in the, in the late 50s. So, yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, also, uh, yeah, my dad used to play a lot of Frank Sinatra when I was growing up, so I was very grateful for that as well because it's... Uh, um, yeah, I think uh, you, you sort of absorb this stuff when you're growing up. And uh, they encouraged me to start playing the piano from the age of four. And after years of watching me knocking the furniture around to top of the pops, when I was 12, they, they got me a secondhand drum kit for £12. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah. Yes. And then, and then... Let's, let's face it, if you encourage your kids to do that, uh, knowing that you're going to have to put up with the racket they're going to make, <laughs> you know, when learning. So uh, yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. that that or the yeah. saxophone must be. You, know, you must have very tolerant neighbours, really. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that must yeah. have been quite something. So, what was your first gig you went to? First gig I went to uh, a very, very. Uh, it took about life changing uh, things. Um, Doctor Fieldbrick, 1975. Um, Portsmouth Guildhall. That's the tour that was for the second album. The second album's Malpractice, and uh, the one where Lee was wearing the the white the white jacket every night for I think 30 gigs, and then the NME printed a picture of what it looked like at the end of it. it was basically like loads of farmyard um, machinery had run over it or something. It's the one that was recorded. The the tour that was recorded for the live album Stupidity. Right. And there's that wonderful film the record company did. They did a, like a half-hour film called Going Back Home. Uh, of It's basically uh, Feel Good playing at the Kersal in Southend, where they were from. And that was shot about two weeks, either before or after the gig that I saw in Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. And that was stunning. I mean, that's with Wilco Johnson doing his sort of psychopathic machine-gunning the crowd with a Telecaster. And they didn't look like rock bands look like they, they look like a bunch of hoods from a film noir or something yes you know they they had sh- basically short hair and demob suits and um they were not prog rock you know they they were they were short sharp three minute or two minute songs and i mean this is a band who put their first album out deliberately in mono in 1974 just as a statement and then the following year uh Along comes the first Ramones album, and some of those songs are, what, a minute and a half, and it's just, here you go. Yes, that's quite um, different, isn't it? Well, when did Down so, by the Jetty come out? Uh, Down by the Jetty, 74, and uh, Malpractice is 75, I believe. Right. Um, Got this. So, uh, yeah, so I saw them, um, yeah, 
it's the autumn of 75 is the gig that I saw. And there's, I think earlier that year, did that, they did that brilliant appearance on the show from up north called The Geordie Scene. Yes. Which, uh, that's magnificent. And that's basically what I saw. I, I saw them about 18 months later, which was shortly after Wilco had left. And, uh, yeah, it was great, but it was not quite the same band. And I saw Wilco with his band, The Solid Senders, in 78. I saw him a couple of times. And that was great, but it wasn't the same band. You know, there's, there's something about the combination of all of them, the original four-piece. Uh, yes. Just, and that, that set everything up for punk in this country, uh, That the energy of it. They really, you know, and, and loads of people, I believe, have said that over the years, uh, you know, The Clash and whoever. And it's true. It's just the, the sheer 100-mile-an-hour um, impact of it. Mm. Yes. Well, I, actually, it's interesting. It's my first. Well, it's not that interesting. But that was nine below zero. Was my first gig. And okay. I was, right. I was, I was very well, mes mesmerized yeah, by the same them. supercharged R and B. Yeah, it's a similar sort of um, direction they're coming from. And uh, and then in the as the seventies went on, I, I saw a lot of the original punk bands, and uh, um, I also started going to see rock and roll people. I first saw Jerry Lee Lewis in, in 1978 at the Rainbow in, in London and, uh, you know, people like that. And did your drumming style change much during that period? Because I was thinking of drummers like Hunt, Hunt Sells, who was in the uh, Iggy Pop, you know, doing The Passenger. Yeah. And there's a particular, I mean, that song is really, I mean, there's a combination of things, but his drumming is just so stunning and, yeah. and expansive. I just wondered, when you started hearing things like that as well, how that kind of influenced you? Um, not really. Um, not. It's funny with with drums. I because uh, piano. I've been sort of trying to play the piano for fifty years now, and uh, there's always a hell of a large space for improvement. But with drums, I don't know if I'm playing drums any better or worse than I ever did. It's it's just one of those things. It was much more instinctive. There's people that I really enjoyed watching. Uh, I used to go and see Elvis Costello in the attractions a lot, right at right at the start. And Pete Thomas was a stunning drummer uh, to watch. Yes, he um, was. I saw the Ramones many times, including, um, well, best gig. I think the best gig I ever saw in my life was them at the Rainbow in 1977, New Year's Eve, the one that was recorded for the double live album, It's Alive. And they filmed it as well. I think was they that the one that all... was that the one that Danny Fields was there and the um, Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales. There was a film recently with Rob Lloyd hanging about mm -hmm. the, the, with the Ramones, and it was just kind of they managed to sort of find this clip of them. I can't remember if that was the first time, but Danny was quite a sort of um, character. He he was uh, he I, he didn't come out on stage or do anything that night. Uh, um, but the Ramones were over here a lot. I mean, they first came over in 76. So this is New Year's Eve, 77. Uh, and, yeah, Tommy uh, playing drums. Absolutely perfect for that band. I saw them many times with Marky, who took over. Uh, but um, And who was also, yeah, great. But, um, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's just, right, but someone I think someone told me that um, when they were supporting them, they'd actually ran through their whole set before going on stage, and you know, they were that tight. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, 
my brother and I we used to uh, we used to follow them around, and so uh, the next time I saw them at the Rainbow it was uh, 19, 1980, uh, and um, we got there in the middle of the afternoon and we got into the sound check. So I don't know if you ever went to see a gig at the Rainbow, but it's, it's big. I mean, it's the sister theatre to the Brixton Academy, built at the same time, and uh, so we watched them do the sound check. There's just the crew and the band on stage and me and my brother sitting in the front row of the stalls and that's it. And yet they pretty much did the whole set um, uh, without without ever saying anything. Just just they'd stop a song and go immediately into the next one or or maybe run three songs into a, into the next. Absolutely staggering. And as I say, they they weren't playing for anybody. They were just as tight as hell. I mean, usually sound checks, you, you play a sound check and it's much more loose than that, most bands. But they were like a machine. They're incredible. Yes. And then sort of as the, as the 70s progressed, I mean, were you sort of trying to form bands at that stage and, and develop your kind of career? Because obviously, when did you leave school? I left school in 78. Uh, so uh, um, I was... In bands from sort of seventy six onwards, late seventy six, early seventy seven, and that was it was the DIY side of punk, basically the whole the classic um, uh, desperate bicycle slogan. It was easy, it was cheap, go and do it, and the the ad <clears throat> the advertising, the Stiff Records advertising for um, the the tour with the Damned and the adverts, which just said, you know. The uh, what is it? The damned can now play three chords. The adverts can play one. Here, all four of them at these gigs. Blah blah blah. And I had a list of dates. And that whole thing saying basically you don't need to be a virtuoso. You don't need to be very good to get up on stage and just start doing things. So I was just, you know, that encouraged me and my friends to just start playing little shows anywhere that would have us around the around the Portsmouth area in sort of the southern bit of Hampshire, just literally um, schools, um, um, youth clubs, uh, eventually pubs, even though I think when we started doing that, we were too young to get into them, but you could get gigs there. And uh, um, and there were loads of other people who were doing the same thing as us, which is to say they were listening to John Peel five nights a week and hearing people who were pretty much the same age as us and... Uh, were getting inspired by the same thing. You didn't have to be good. You just had to have some ideas and, uh, you know, uh, have a bit of confidence in yourself. Uh, yes. Was there, a so, fantastic yeah, was, the... was there a fantastic cassette compilation that came out from the Portsmouth? I might be getting Portsmouth and Plymouth slightly mixed up now. That's a terrible uh, thing to admit, isn't it? Ports Portsmouth had... Because the local accent in Portsmouth, uh, in, the, in the city, is very... Uh, it's not like a Hampshire country accent. It's not some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, rural sort of... It's very tough, it's very urban. And uh, So the the Pompey compilation that came out, which I'm not on, but that was called Git Dane, which was spelled G-I-T-D-A-Y-N, uh, which is Get Down. So they were taking the piss out of the whole sort of disco kind of thing. But that is... That was the... Yeah, that was the one. Yes, but there was another one called uh, Against the Tide, which was 
put together by what's his name? Um, Paul Groovy. Was it Paul Groovy? Does that ring a bell? Because the thing is, I, I left Pompey in '78, so there's a whole music scene there that happened in the '80s, for instance, that I don't know anything about because I just wasn't. I wasn't around. I was in London. So. Yes, you'd gone. Yeah. So when did you? So what? So because the band you you formed, you know, didn't sort of come out until sort of quite a bit into the '80s. So what was the early '80s like for you? Um, I was doing all sorts of jobs and. Uh, I've always been in bands, uh, but the first band I was in, really, that anybody, um, in terms of touring, playing, playing music in front of people or whatever, just um, was when I started playing uh, playing drums with my friend Nicky Sudden from the Swell Maps, and that that was 1990, and he rang me up one day. I'd known him for a few years, and we were just mates, but I don't think he'd ever seen me play the drums, you know, but he knew I could play the drums. And he rang me up and said, my drummer's just left, I've got a tour of Japan starting next week, and then three weeks in Germany, uh, and then and then playing in Austria. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I learnt about 40 songs in a week, and then we got on a very... <laughs> very unstable aeroflot flight via Moscow, 18 hours to Tokyo. And uh, it was like uh, it was like being trapped in the opening scenes of A Hard Day's Night. We were literally being chased down the street by screaming crowds. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it was phenomenal. Uh, Nicky had never been there before. It was, uh, uh, yeah, it was just this whole, but obviously, understandably, there was huge respect for him for what he'd done in the Swell Maps, for what he'd done in the Jacobites, uh, you know, this is a man who'd been a mainstay of Creation Records. And in Tokyo, like, big, big vinyl collecting scene, you know, they really knew their history. And uh, so uh, it was a hero's welcome. And uh, so that was one hell of a introduction to touring. Yes. You know, rather, uh, in, in the, and about six months later, uh, I joined, oh, wait a minute, we started the Earls of Suave. Um and that was that was for entertainment. All of us were in other bands. Uh, uh, that was with Bal, who was in the Stingrays, and, uh, and Mark Hoskin, who'd been in the Stingrays, and everybody was basically doing other things. But that was just to ed- entertain ourselves. Let's get up and do some Elvis stuff, some Dean Martin stuff, some you know, Roy Orbison, whatever. And uh, then uh, I joined Gallon Drunk, um. and uh, that was about May. 1991, and we recorded a single called Some Fool's Mess, and we did a Peel session, and it just went ballistic, everything, and suddenly it's just the music press and lots of touring and, uh, yeah, television and what have you. So really, in terms of me doing anything in music that anyone would have ever noticed, uh, even though I'd been in a string of bands in the 80s, it's... 1990 and me getting on a plane with with Nicky. Nicky, yes. And every, everything since then. Uh, I left Gallon Drunk in uh, 1993, towards the end of 93, and following year got together a band with some mates of mine, most of whom had been in the Isles of Suave, and we wanted to do our own material. And that was the Flaming Stars. And that lasted with the same people 25 years. Uh, most bands 
struggle to last two years with with the same lineup. But yes, well, I, I sort of realised that four to five years is <laughs> quite a bit of a sort of a narrative which I found going back with Nikki because I, I did an mm. interview with was it Jeremy Gluck recently? Who... Yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy and Nikki they were mates and they collaborated on an album in the mid eighties called I Knew Buffalo Bill. That's um, right. And there was Jeffrey yeah. Lee Pierce. Was That's it? Pierce? it. Jeffrey what, Lee Pierce. For, with yeah. the, from the Gun Club, yes. That's it. Uh, Nicky knew everybody and did some great collaborations. He did a, an album, just uh, sort of a duo album, him and Roland S. Howard. That's uh, right. Which, was, which yes. is a fabulous album. Really, really good. And obviously, Nicky's brother, Epic Soundtracks, who was also in the Swell Maps. Uh, Epic was played drums uh, with Roland for quite a few years uh, in the late 80s. Yes. And how were you navigating? Because Jeremy, obviously, he's still alive because I interviewed him recently. But how did you manage to sort of... Because I think there was a line-up with Nicky, How uh, Roland, Jeffrey, and um, and unfortunately they all passed away. But uh, Jeremy managed to survive that one. Did you? Were you sort of having to sort of keep your wits about you a bit? Or was it...? Um, I think in, in rock and roll, in rock and roll, you, 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 you're going to get offered... I think every drink and every drug and every chance to chuck yourself off a high building or drive into a wall or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, there's something about touring. Um, you wouldn't do that sort of thing normally. If you've, if you've had, you know, if somebody has their 21st birthday party, they think, I'm going to get all my friends together, I'm going to get loads of drink and whatever, and we're going to have a wild night and we're going to stay up most of the night. The state you want wake up in the day after your 21st birthday party you don't generally think okay i'm going to sit in a van for seven hours feeling like that and then i'm going to do exactly the same thing again tonight and i'm going to do that every night for the next two months eventually your, your health is you know you're in all sorts of trouble and i think people if you want to become uh an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever uh, it's there's all sorts of things that can happen to you just because it's an insane lifestyle. And I think people, not to compare it to people going to to fight in a war, but if, if you if you read uh, um, Homage to Catalonia, George George Orwell's uh, memoir of being fighting with the anarchists in Spain in 1936, you know he's He's talking about trying to stay awake for, I think, five or six days in a trench because they were due to get attacked at any time. So you just could not go to sleep. And he doesn't mention taking any uh, Benzedrine or whatever, but he says after after a few days, you just start hallucinating anyway. And touring is not a natural state. Uh, so, um, you know, everybody's human. So yes, I, well, I've, got, um, I've, I've I think... got a huge huge sympathy for anybody who who got into whatever in rock and roll because there's a line on on the first clash album uh where joe strummer's singing uh contracts in the offices groups in the night and that's really what it is you know there's some there's a manager somewhere who signed a deal that says you're going to drive from here to here to here to here to here you know they'll lay out a schedule for you but they're not in the van with you. You're the <laughs> one that's got to do it. And when it's all going really crazy for you, 
if you're on the front pages of a magazine, they want you out there 100% of the time because you're earning money for the record company or for the manager or for the music publisher. And they're the one at home with a um, comfortable life and usually a reasonable-sized apartment or house. And uh, how many times have you read in the paper that uh, somebody's tour has been cancelled because uh, people in the band were... What's the phrase they use? Sort of, you know, stress or whatever. You know, it's just... You collapse, basically. Yes. But it's remember. a lot of fun. Yeah. But I'd, I've, I've just tried... I'd, I'd, I've always tried to uh, keep a lid on things, basically. I I, uh, I don't trust people coming up to me with random packets of whatever. Um, I've always been, uh, uh, no, thank you, I'll have something that comes out of a bottle, please, because I know that's either been brewed or distilled, and um, it, I know what it'll taste like. It'll taste the same as it did yesterday. Yes, this yeah. is true. I do remember, I think it was the bass player of a band called was it Voice of the Beehive. And, I mean, they were doing yeah. lots of big tours around the world. And yeah. then one day he realised he was having a conversation in the toilet and he, and he realised it was the mirror that he was talking to. And he was like, yeah. I might have to stop this because it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously had it. You know, I'm just, I don't know where I am and who I'm talking to, but I've just been having a chat with the mirror for half an hour. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, that's not good, was it? So, I um, think the best... The best advice, really, if, if anybody... I mean, obviously, the music business has changed so much these days anyway, but if you get into that, the people who are touring at the really top level, um, they have the big hotels. They fly, you know, say you're doing an American tour, you fly between gigs. So you just have a short flight in the morning, maybe 45 minutes. You've got the rest of the day to chill out. You're in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, you've got... Um, there's a sauna, there's a swimming pool, there's a gym, there's, uh, you can afford, um, uh, you can afford to ring up uh, and, and say, can you send me some food, please, all of this. Whereas the kind of tours I've done, the same kind of things, but you're driving those distances. We did Salt Lake City to Seattle once uh, in one day. That's, that's 1,100 miles, and that's through the Rockies. That was down in our in our on our schedule as rest day you know there wasn't a gig that day <laughs> so um uh, i think you know when you're in cheap motels and struggling to eat properly um the best thing a record company could do for you is is build in more gaps basically don't send you out on tour two days after you just come back from a three-week tour yes but, but quite often that's what they do and so the band they get burnt out they, you wind up hating each other because you spend far too much time crammed into a tiny van getting on each other's nerves. The band splits up and then the record company thinks, fine, we'll sign, you know, give us another one. We'll, we'll sign somebody new, somebody fresh. Yes. If, if I signed... Uh, I'm, my sympathies with the musicians because uh, I think they often... They're the ones out there doing it, but often somebody else is making the money. Yes, well, I did an interview, Paul. I remember doing an interview. I mean, most musicians have a similar story, but Les from the Bay City Rollers probably tops them all, really, doesn't yes. he? Because you can't yeah. get more tragic than, than Les from the Bay City Rollers. Because, yeah. I mean, they, they, he should have been just like, right, I've got so many millions, I'm really just going to go into um, a health farm rehab and sort myself out. Oh, I've got no money. <laughs> it's like, oh, where did that all happen? You know, it was, it was a horrible story, isn't it? So, um, so uh, I don't I, know. I find if I read back through my diaries because I'm, I'm the next 
I'm, I'm in the middle of finishing a book at the moment. So the next book I do after this one is going to be uh, essentially based on, you know, my memories of, it's not going to be fiction, it's going to be non-fiction, just uh, my time in bands on the road and just recordings and whatever. Uh, and um, if you, sometimes if, if I sit down and read bits from, that were written in the middle of a very long tour, it's it's exhausting. It wears you out just reading it because you, you, the person talking to you is just, it's you, but it's you a long time ago, worn out, basically. And you can see how much uh, it just needed to stop for a little while. Yes. Uh, and, uh, but but with your, with, with um, the flaming... I was going to, yeah, the Flaming Stars. Um, yeah. Sorry, you knew I was going to say that. No, it's all right. There's too many bands called, uh, <laughs> called Flaming. But um, it was kind of an interesting period, wasn't it? Because we'd had the sort of, I mean, obviously the indie world had, I mean, yeah, I mean, I put the indie world between 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths. And then they broke up, then Ecstasy comes along. This is kind of quite simplistic. Then you had the rave scene and everyone getting into Ecstasy because the next yeah. generation of 16 to 18 year olds want their uh, soundtrack. And then we had the grunge scene. And then the Britpop world started to appear as well during that, that time. So with, yeah. when, when you emerged in the sort of the mid 90s, the John Major years, I mean, um, yeah. Well, that was, of course, our big inspiration. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, uh, so we, we started uh, October 94 uh, did our first recordings in January 95 and that was an EP that came out in March of 1995 so that's when we first had something you know we've been doing gigs around London and, and then uh, sent an EP to various people including John Peel uh, at that time so yeah we as far as the wider country is concerned, 1995, that's, that's us. We didn't fit in at all. And uh, we were on a tiny label, which was a very good label, Vinyl Japan. Yes. I didn't realise, uh, I should know this, but I always thought they just did lots of reissues. But then there no, was... No, no, There was Sarah Record... There was a few bands on uh, with the Hit Parade, I think, and various bands, like some quirky and slightly Sarah Record-esque kind of bands on Vinyl Japan, weren't they? Because, funny enough, the Japanese loved Sarah Records, and they still do. Yeah, I think they had that side to them, but the reason they were interested in us is because they were also a lot of the uh, a lot of the London garage bands basically were on to uh, were on uh, were on vinyl Japan. Uh, you know, they were putting out lots of uh, Billy Childish uh, head coats, head coatees. Uh, they were putting out stuff by uh, people who'd been in the Delmonas, uh, the Prisoners, all the, all these kind of people. So it was the London garage scene that were around uh, the Toe Rag Studios. Uh, and uh, they'd, they'd, done, they'd already done the Elsa Suave, uh, one of the Elsa Suave singles in the Elsa Suave album. So that was the side of Vino Japan that was interested in us. Vino Japan also put out a lot of um, sort of contemporary British rockabilly uh, and, and some psychabilly and even, uh, even some uh, sort of later punk stuff. Yes. Um, people like Chaos UK. So it was it was one of those. If you came from that label, that really we were talking to. Oh dear, people like Steve Lamack and uh, Mark Radcliffe and John Peel all started playing us because they liked our first single. And Steve Lamack said to me, oh, "I really didn't expect 
you to be on something like Vinyl Japan. I think they didn't have a clear idea of what that label was, uh, which is a shame because they actually gave, you know, very small but very useful record deals to lots of people who wouldn't otherwise have um, been able to put a record out. And, yeah. uh, well, so it was important, and the internet absolutely killed that label stone dead. Um, once people could rip off something for nothing, by the early 90s, but by the early 2000s, sorry, uh, instead of selling two or 3,000 copies of an album, suddenly it was they'd sell 800 copies of an album. So it went from being a profitable thing to being a loss-making thing. And, uh, yeah, they went bankrupt. Yes. So, were, were you part uh, of that kind of scene with people like, um, is it Gary Day and Alan White and Boz Bora? You know, that kind of bit of a rockabilly scene in London. Basically, they um, all became Morrissey's <laughs> band in, in the well, early I, 90s. I only met, uh, I, I know all of those guys, but I only met them through, because uh, Morrissey came to seek Alan Drunk when we played a benefit gig for the Scala Cinema who were being sued by Stanley Kubrick or Stanley Kubrick's people for having shown Clockwork Orange. And so we did this gig at the Scala and uh, Morrissey was there and he loved it. So a few weeks later, we got a message from his people saying, can you come and do you want to support us in America and Canada? And it was the Euro Arsenal tour uh, in the um... summer of... Mick Ronson, Mick Ronson produced that, didn't he? He produced that, yes, indeed. And and so we played at Madison Square Garden on that tour, for instance. And Mick Mick was at the gig. Uh, he was already very ill by that stage, but um, I was really, you know, to have done a gig in front of Mick Ronson, I'm very chuffed to bits uh, with that. Um, but uh, uh, that is how I met, yeah, because uh, Boz and Alan were playing guitar for Morrissey on that tour and, and Gary was playing bass. So, uh, yeah, and I know they all came from the, uh, you know, from a rockabilly background. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd never met any of them, but I, I, I saw the Polecats, um, Boz's band, I, I saw them right at the start, actually, beginning of the 80s, I, I saw them. They were, they were really, really good. Um, but, no, I didn't know any of them, but... Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But then, because with, with throughout the 90s and then just into the next decade, you were literally, you must have been flat out because you were releasing albums virtually every year, yes. as well as touring. That must have yeah. been a period of your life which, you, when you look back, back at those diaries, you must go, hmm, that was really quite full on. If you'd known what you were going to experience, would you have thought twice about it or was it just like, um, oh, this is the ride? I think probably not. Uh, I, I was doing a five-day-a-week job as well at the, the time, working working in a cinema, because none of this pays. You know, you, if you're on Vinyl Japan, it's not like they're saying, "Here you go, lads." Uh, you know, here's your wage. Which, if you're on a major label, that's that's what you get. When I was in Gallon Drunk, we were on a, a wage. It wasn't much, but we were we were doing that full time. Yes. But the great the great thing about Vinyl Japan is that you know every few months they say, "Well, that, that last single sold. Do you want to do another one?" So. Um, that was great. And every time they said yes, I'd write some more songs and we'd go into Torag and, you know, we would do... Uh, our first ever session was one afternoon at Torag and we recorded seven songs, which we mixed the following morning. Uh, four of them were our first EP and one of them was the B-side of our second uh, single. 
the other two we redid them but you could work working with Liam at Torag his whole thing was he wanted it to be the way people recorded say in the early 60s the way Joe Meek recorded all of that in the days when I mean Johnny Cash used to do an album in an afternoon in the early 60s without batting an eyelid and you can if you've rehearsed the songs and if you've maybe gigged best thing is take them out to a few gigs play them in a bit so what you're essentially doing in the studio is is uh, capturing a performance rather than building something up uh, I'm a drummer but I've never played to a click track in my life can't stand them uh, you want a record to swing you want it to speed up and slow down and the uh, um, a lot of my favorite records from whatever era it's what you're hearing is everybody playing in a room um, the, all the people at Sun Records uh, if you go and stand in that room in Memphis at Union Avenue you know it's not very big and that just or Pathway Studios we did a Flaming Stars album at Pathway Studios in Islington which is where the you know the first Damned album was done and all the great early stiff singles and the first, the initial singles on Chiswick, you know, the Count Bishop's uh, EP and stuff like that. That was a tiny room, eight-track studio. But what you're hearing on those records is somebody going, one, two, three, go. And, yeah. Um, yes, I've done quite a few. But, I've just realized I've done a lot, quite a few. Um, I've quite a, actually a huge amount of interviews with drummers. And actually the click track, there's a couple who were still emotionally disturbed by the memory of it. And there was even a film by about the, the wedding present and their, their album George Best. And there was this bit where the, the drummer basically has to leave. I don't know if it has to leave, but he leave, leaves in the process. And the producer was furious. And I was like an indie kid. And I thought, I can't imagine anybody being that uptight about the click track. But apparently it was. And it was this little message, you know, flashed up on the in the film saying... I don't know, some sort of legal thing that I sort of made the film rather jarring. But yes, and then there was the woman from The Go-Betweens who... And it was an amazing story because The Go-Betweens, I mean, just briefly, there was like two couples and the producer yes, said know, to yeah. the main writer, look, this is what it sounds like with the click track. This is what it sounds like with your partner playing. One's going to be a hit, one's not. What do you want to do? Yeah. It's a bit grubby story, uh, at really. That, at that point, pardon my French, you tell the producer to fuck off and you get another producer. Because um, you've always got to be prepared to fight in a studio. Uh, you know, in, in, in Gallon Drunk, I don't, I don't mean fight inside the band. I mean stand up for what... Because click tracks came in because it's easier for the producer. You know, oh, we can always drop this in a... Rubbish, do it again. That was, that was Sam Phillips at Sun. His famous thing was saying, I want a performer that can stand there and say, it may take me one take, it may take me... 20 takes, it may take me all night, but I've got a performance in me and I can give you something. Which is why the great Jerry Lee Lewis tracks, sometimes things like Hold Lot of Shaking, it's not like the first take or anything. Sometimes he'd done them 30 or 40 times. Um, Elvis, I think, did 33 takes of Hound Dog and that's the one they used. Was the uh, you know, it's too easy to fix something uh, when you've got a click track. And what you're losing is the spontaneity. A producer, uh, I'm very good at ranting about this, and I'll stop in just a second. A producer would have told the Kingsman to go back and fix the bit where the vocalist comes in too early. Um, and uh, on Louis Louis, basically. Yes. And that would have ruined that song. 
That's one of the great moments in rock and roll for me is where he comes in too early. The drummer shuts him up by walloping, by doing a, a break around the kit. And the vocalist just waits and then comes in in the right place. Um, yeah. Yes. I, 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 I think it, it's, it's uh, along with things like Photoshop and whatever, it's, uh, I want the dirt. I want the, uh, uh, you know, I, I want the rough edges. And uh, when I used to go into the studio, and producers would say to me, what do you want the drums to sound like? Um, I had, my standard phrase was, in gallon drums, I want it to sound like a, a bunch of metal dustbins being flung down some concrete staircase. Um, that's basically... Yes. You know, I don't want it perfect. I don't want it um, clean. Um, but they, they, want, they want you to use a click track so they can edit things out, drop things back in, remix things. I don't ever want a remix of anything in my life. Um, I don't want an overdub, a complicated... Sure, you overdub things, but it's, you know, uh, you you can get to past a point where it helps, but to the point where things are too perfect. And that's great for some people, uh, and sure, if it's if it's craft work or something, fine. It's supposed to be electronic and machine-like. Outside of that, if it's guitars and drums and whatever, I'm firmly on the Neanderthal side of things. But yes. that's just me. Well, I always remember the story of was it Black Sabbath's first album. I think they recorded that in. Well, I think that was just that's just their live sets. They just went and played it and went, well, that's it. Yeah. Within about four a few hours, it's like, well, that's what we've been doing for years. So there's no point. There's nothing. There's nothing to redo. We've done it. The, put it out. The first Velvet's album, I think, is 48 hours. The Slider by T Rex, which is one of the great albums for me, is also 48 hours. Boland, Boland didn't like, he was rich enough, he didn't like paying for studio time, according to the people around him. He'd, he'd rehearse things and then he'd go in and try and do it as quickly as possible mm. uh, to save money. But that also is how you capture. Uh, I think the first Ramones album was done in a similar kind of time. Yes. And for me, for me that's the best Ramones album. Well, it's interesting because actually those John Peel sessions often sounded better exactly. than the studio exactly. albums. And I know because I was a bit of a big Smith fan, the first Smith album sounds really poor. And then he does the, that compilation, Hatful of Hollow. Yes. Um, it's just yeah. amazing. And you think, oh, this is this, this now sounds like a really rich band rather than some tinny well, old thing. Those engineers are stunning. We, we worked, I mean, I've, I've done nine Peel sessions in my life. Uh, Gallon Drunk did one, and then we did eight with, the, eight with the Flaming Stars. And you'd go into Maida Vale, and this like the guys that were there in the mid-'90s, the engineers, you'd be in <coughs> one of the studios there, and you'd say, they'd say, what, is, what do you want this song to sound like? And you'd say, well, it's got a sort of a Buzzcocks feel. And they just sort of grin at you. And you go, all right, so you did that one. And you said, yeah, yeah. I did the first couple of Buzzcocks, uh, you know, this is the engineer saying he did the first couple of Buzzcocks sessions. And uh, then they go, it was in this room, and they were standing over there. And then you talk to them about, oh, this one's got a bit of a T-Rex thing. And then they'd laugh at you and just, yeah, yeah, I did I did this. You know, Bolan was over there sitting cross-legged on the floor. The history there, but they knew they knew that room backwards. They knew their equipment, so they could mic something up. didn't matter what you brought in. They'd never seen that instrument before that they could get a really tough sound out of it in about half an hour. Yes. And 
you know, you'd do, as you say, four or five songs in an afternoon, then go and have a drink and come back and spend a couple of hours mixing in the evening. And that's your session. And, um, yeah, I, I think with a lot of, with a lot of bands, I prefer their, their pure sessions to, uh, uh, to their studio stuff. Yes. Did you work with the, the famous Dale Griffith, by the way? Oh, yes. Yeah, just the once. That was the, uh, the Gallon Drunk session in, uh, uh, yes, the, pretty much 30 years ago now, uh, 1991, summer of 1991. And uh, I was knocked out just because of being a big Mott the Hoople fan. And um, my drum kit was a thing that Premier used to make in the late 60s. Uh, they, were, they had a brand called Beverly. Uh, and he just got chatting to me. He said, oh, I, I used to have one of those. And blah, blah, blah. So my main conversation with him that day was just about the drum kit, not how I wanted it to sound, but yeah, he was he was a good guy. Yeah, he got a, he, he got a wonderful sound out of us. Again, without really trying, or I, he just knew what he was doing. Yeah. Yes, and when you when you went, you sort of towards the sort of next decade, born under a, a bad neon sign. Was that an yeah. album that when you were putting it together, did you sort of feel like that was going to be almost the last time in the studio for a while? No, not at all. Um, it's uh, we had, as I said, Vinyl Japan went out of business, and then we went, we got, we recovered our back catalogue. That was the upside of them having gone out of a business. We got the rights back to, you can imagine. Uh, I think we we'd done something like 110, 120 tracks. Uh, yes. over the course of about 10 years with Vinyl Japan. So we got the rights back and I went and had a word with the, the, lo the lovely people at Ace Records, Big Beat, who I'd known for years. And I said, hey, you know, how's about a best of? And and by the way, can we do uh, a brand new album? And the thing is, Ace really were just moving away from with Big Beat, they I mean, obviously the Cramps had been on Big Beat and the Stingrays and all sorts of people, but they ha were really stopping doing new acts. If you see what I mean, yes. they were. They was were was actually they, a member of the Stingrays in worked for Ace Records in America? I can't remember. God. Yeah, that's Alec Alec Palau. Right. Yeah, he's been out there for twenty years, more than twenty years now. Yeah, doing all the tape research. He's their official U.S. representative, whereas Joe and uh, Mark from the Stingrays in the Flaming Stars and also in the Oz of Suave and Bal, the singer from the Stingrays, was a singer in the Oz of Suave. So it, it all fits together. It does. Um, but uh, so we struck a deal with Ace. They let us do a new album, which was Born Under a Bad Neon Sign. Uh, I think because they wanted the double CD that we put together, which was called London After Midnight, which was sort of like a 60-track best of. It's like all the singles plus a selection of the best of the album tracks and B-sides. Uh, now, that is still in print and has been for ever since it came out in 2006, whereas Bad Neon Sign, it came out, and then I think they let it go out of catalogue relatively shortly afterwards. Um, as I say, they were not really in the business of putting out new records by current bands. You know, they were, and rightly so, known as pretty much the best reissue label, uh, catalogue label in the world. 
So um, I don't know we were such a good fit in that instance, but we were an ideal fit with the double compilation. Um, no one since has ever come to us and said, hey, guys, did you want to make another record? So um, that was really where where that uh, uh, stopped. And the, the, the industry has changed, as you know, so much. I mean, the, the whole thing, I mean, these days people put themselves out on band camp. They, they um, I mean, vinyl was the... British music industry tried very hard to get rid of vinyl at a time when, you know, from the late 90s onwards, at a time when in Europe I was living in Berlin for five years from 2000 to 2005 and we would be touring over there. Vinyl never died in Germany, ever. But, um, you know, the NME told me in, I think, 1979, don't send us any more uh, singles because we've got rid of our record deck. The enemy getting rid of their record deck. There's oh no, sorry, that's old fashioned. We were absolutely mocked for having an af an affiliation with vinyl, with Torag records, re with recording on tape rather than digital. You know, they laughed at. And um, so to see the whole rise of vinyl becoming trendy, and this whole record store day, which has now been taken over by the majors to plug whatever, you know major album from the 70s they want to reissue very expensively um, so that as I understand it if you're an indie label you're really having difficulty getting um, getting space at pressing plants yes I know there's a few Which little labels that I deal with or, or speak to and it's like yeah. oh the album can't come out for another year because there's just nothing until yes next year now. and yet and yet it's those labels and those bands that believed in vinyl and kept it going when the major labels, you know, EMI, getting rid of their... Um, we used to always get our records cut at Porky's, uh, you know, Porky Prime Cut, uh, George Peckham. And, uh, you know, he used to tell us horror stories about the stuff that was being got rid of. And, uh, yeah, when the EMI got rid of their pressing plants and stuff, it's just the capacity. They thought it was all over. Mind you, that's where Torag came from, was them selling up all of their... Uh, all of their gear. I mean, Torag was built on uh, gear from Decca, gear from Abbey Road, you know, all the great analogue stuff. Yes. But they were throwing out in the 80s, and, and Liam was smart enough to be buying it up for virtually nothing because the industry didn't want it. No. So it makes me laugh to see the industry now banging the drum for vinyl. They hated the stuff. They laughed at it. and um, Scrabbling around like dogs. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's it's a it's a funny thing. I I I never got rid of my record deck. I never sold my vinyl. I died. That to me is a is a. Uh, you, you've just got something. Well, they they basically your diary. They're like your diary or something, really. They they all have a story, and an, yeah. an amusing, especially in those days where you'd just sort of John Peel would play something, you'd scribble down the you know on a bit of paper the band and the song, and then you spent the next. Yeah, trying to find that, that record. Yes. Sometimes it was horrendously yeah. hard work, but you found it and then you're never going to... You're going to record it once on a cassette and then keep the vinyl in beautiful condition, yeah. let's face it. <laughs> it was, it was worth... Me, yeah, yeah the, the internet has done, it's done enormous good and enormous bad at the same time. What it's done to the record industry is appalling. It's basically just facilitating people who write songs and bands just really not getting paid, basically. It's far too easy to rip 
rip off the people who actually make the music and uh, um, the streaming services want to pay absolutely sod all to the people who to the bands for for making their music uh, available whereas in the old days if you got to play on radio one you know evening radio one that was worth it if you'd written that song you you, you actually saw some money yes. some proper money for that whereas um I'm, I'm sure this is old news to you that the the amount of of streams you have to have on Spotify or one of those in order to make, say, 100 quid is absolutely insane. So somebody's making money out of it, but it's not the musician. <coughs> and with your touring, I mean, did you... Because mm. in those kind of days of the 80s and 90s, and possibly earlier ones, but you know, there was definitely the gatekeepers. There was John Peel, Janice Long, and um, all those other DJs, Steve Lamarck, and, and, you know, the three music papers, weeklies. But then there was also... Oh, five, every Five, actually. God, Record Mirror? Enemy uh, Sounds, Record Mirror, uh, Melody Maker, and... Um, disc. Ah! <clears throat> I thought you were going to say Echoes. I think it was by... Um, ah. <clears throat> but did you... Yes... But every city and town had a sort of an alternative indie night. So did you play virtually yeah. every town and city in the UK as well as do your European tour? Yeah, um, it, through the 90s, yes, uh, in Gallon Drunk. And then the first five years or so of um, uh, of the Flaming Stars. It's That scene started collapsing by the very end of the 90s. Because at the beginning of the 90s, people believed if you were in a local town, that you could go to your little local venue like the Joiners Arms in Southampton or the Derby Warehouse or um, the Duchess of York at Leeds. Princess or, Charlotte. Or Norwich Arts. Yes. This whole thing. You know, these places. And you might have read about them in a short review in the NME and you think, I'd better go and see them now because the next time they come through, they're going to be playing, you know, a, a theatre that holds 2,000 or something like that. And people did come up that way. They, uh, you play the Joiners' Arms as, as we did many times. I mean, people like Radiohead started there, and 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 uh, you know they, they did that circuit, and so did Blur, and so did all those kind of cranberries. Cranberries were fourth on the bill to us once in um, at Yulu. Mind you, Radiohead were bottom of the bill to us in Gallon Drunk uh, in <laughs> 1992. Um, so by the end of the 90s. That was complete. Nobody believed that if you went to your little local venue, you were going to see anything good. And I think the generation that was then 18, they had been educated that you, you go to the NEC at Birmingham or something if you go to a gig or you go to a festival. You know what I mean? Yes. They started equating, equating bands with a huge audience and that, that if it was playing at your local pub, it must be rubbish. Even if that band had driven 500 miles to get there, they couldn't believe. Whereas, uh, so we eventually, by the early 2000s, knocked it on the head. Unless we were going somewhere we really liked, like Newcastle, they always t would show up in Newcastle and have a good time. Or Brighton uh, was always a good one. Certain ones, um, great audience. But if you've ever driven all the way to Carlisle to find that, uh, you know, 10 people have shown up, um, you just, it, it's, uh, 
I think it was a shift in generational behaviour. Yes, well, it's interesting. It wasn't just us. Yeah. That new bands, uh, you're not, if you go back through, you're not going to find the sort of bands that got big in 2003 having started playing the toilet circuit. Their first gig, their first London gig was probably Shepherd's Bush Empire, and that they considered a small gig. You know what I mean? It, it's uh, it's the, the way the industry operated was very much the entry point was much higher. Yes, because uh, I, I didn't. I was going to say I did an interview with a. I think his name's Nicky Camp, who was a, a, a New York kind of promoter and did various venues in the late late eighties onwards until the industry all died last year before the you know as the pandemic. Yeah. But he was just saying that actually people just want to go and see DJs now. The the time when he yeah. was kind of he'd started and you'd put on some gigs and realise, oh yeah, we can fill this venue out every night in you know yeah. but he said no. He's looking at it and thinking that he, you know his career's kind of almost over, even though you know, he started with that kind of, I suppose it was rock and heavy rock and people like Guns N' Roses, but he said that, you know, they were a small L.A. band. And um, But you just found that for decades you could just put a band on and, and people would be there, but he, he he wasn't feeling confident about New York anymore. Yeah. So um, some, yeah. some venues had already gone that way by the early 90s um, because with the rave scene, uh, Acid House, what have you, the, 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 uh, some of the venues were saying, look, we just have to pay one DJ rather than um, pay a band and loads of meals, lots of ride-up, blah, blah, blah. It was just easier for them. Uh, and they could fill the place with the DJ. So that's what they... Yes. Uh, and... That's what they would do. Um, whereas uh, for the last 20 years, uh, we've been playing... God, I mean... Basically, the difference with the Flaming Stars was we figured, all right, we can go somewhere and be paid not a whole lot and have to drive back to London in the middle of the night because we haven't been paid enough for hotels and blah and this and that. Or we can go all over mainland Europe and get paid a, a really very large fee plus hotels, plus food, plus unlimited drink uh, for the night. You know, which would you rather do? Is this, they, you will still get an audience turning up in Germany, in Spain, in France, in uh, Sweden, in uh, uh, Greece. We used to go to Greece every year to play in Athens. And uh, the last time we did that, I think it was about 2006, they flew us in. Um, it was a venue that could take, I think, 1,500, maybe 2,000. Big, big venue. And... Uh, uh, it was nearly thirty euros a ticket, and that's for that's for us, basically, with a support band. Yeah, because um, it's so different game to somebody saying, "Yeah, mate, I can pay you a hundred quid to drive all the way to wherever," and uh, and when you get here, um, it turns out that the promoter hasn't even bothered to put a photocopied poster up on the wall of his own club to let people know. Yes, this is true. Because actually, it was I think it was Lemmy who mentioned about his time with Motorhead was that it was the German audience that kept the band going for various times. Yeah. And also, they, there, they, there was also... They um, really do. They, yeah, I was going to say, there was also... Uh, I did an interview with a guy from The Godfathers and also Fish, who yeah. was the, in the Marillion. And he said yeah. that basically it was like 30, well, 29, 28 dates in 30 days. You just had yeah. to go for it and do Europe. So this was before the whole Brexit thing. So... Um, but people, people would 
look after you over there and feed you well uh, and just then take you, you know, you'd finish playing at maybe two or three o'clock in the morning and then they'd say, hey, there's a great after-hours bar around the corner, you know, and my friend runs it, shall we go there? So you would actually see, you, you're not being a tourist, you're actually being taken, say you're in Nuremberg or wherever you are, to the cool spots that, you know, that the locals know about and uh, and you get chatting to some of the people after the show and they've actually listened, they've been listening to your records for however many years and they, they've they've actually gone to the trouble to find out about you and, and it's uh, yeah. I think it is, I think Just good it, good experiences basically. It was some I think somebody said they all buy six CDs and a T shirt because they give the T shirt uh, CDs to all their friends. So you do really well on the merchant stall as well. So yes, obviously you do. Yeah. <laughs> And particularly they would that if you had an album, they'd say, you know, you'd say, well, we've got the CD and we've got the vinyl. And they'd always say, can I have the vinyl, please? 100% of the time. So, uh, yes. That teaches you something about... Uh, they, they uh, yeah. If you're a band from, from Britain or a band from America, there's still that residual fondness in many countries for the fact that you've come from the same place that... You know, the, the, the great, a lot of the great punk bands, or, or even going back to the 60s, they just got used to the fact that that's where a lot of good music came from. So, uh, yes. It was very beneficial to bands to be able to get on stage and say, uh, get on stage, I've done it a few times, get on stage in Japan and say, we're from London. Uh, they, that means, you know, something, basically. Yes, absolutely. And when you reformed, because you reformed, did a, a support slot with the Nightingales, didn't you, a few years ago at the, in Camden? Um, we, we didn't reform. No, we didn't reform. Uh, uh, that was just one of our regular gigs. Uh, and uh, we were playing uh, regularly with uh, doing... The guy who books the uh, Dublin Castle... It's the same guy who was booking the Dublin Castle and booking us back in the mid '90s, and he put us on. Yeah, and he put the uh, uh, Nightingales on uh, as well. Yeah. Yes, but, but that was not that was not a case of hey, do you want to support the Nightingales? Because uh, uh, we didn't. Uh, no, but then you've also in this in this kind of interesting time. Have done two solo albums, didn't you? Yeah, uh, that's uh, last year. I put them up on Bandcamp, and uh, those my way of uh, writing songs has always been sit down with the four track at home and play all the instruments myself, and and that's a way of visualising it, and uh, some of the four-track recordings that I had from over the years, I just thought, well, I like the way that came out just as a just as a thing in itself. Um, and so that's what those are. But I've been doing a lot of recording, writing new songs the last seven or eight months. Yes. And recording them. So that is something I'll be putting out hopefully sometime this year. And will you and, and will you all, be doing that that's as all a, new new material? Basically. And that's your solo project or work? That's just me. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Just come out under under my name. Because your vocal's quite Lou Reed, isn't it? Does everyone say that, don't they? Um, it's I don't know. It's it's in in 
I think the main thing I've always tried to sing like myself. Uh, there's a temptation when you're growing up, particularly if you do if you're doing cover versions uh, of things, is to try and sing it like whoever's on the record, or you know the way a lot, a lot of people in the first sort of British rock bands in the fifties they they would sing in an American accent and stuff like that. And uh, um, yeah, I mean I I love the Velvet Underground. I love Lou Reed and uh, uh, along with you know various other bands that are very important to me. But that that is a uh, that's me consciously trying to sing the way uh, uh, to stay true to the voice that I've got and not try and put anything on. So that is also that is how it comes out. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, you never know how that could go down. Actually, so on. on yeah. So with the lockdown period, you've yeah. been. Have you been going through your archives and thinking, right? I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to write my next book as well. Well, that's that. It's more the yes, but the other way around. Uh, basically, I I knew as I was getting to the end of the book that I'm writing at the moment that the next thing I want to do is is um, write a sort of okay not my not a story about my life but a story about my life in uh, a, a a memoir of my life in in rock and roll basically just my time in bands because you, you lots of stupid stuff happens to you you wind up meeting people i mean you mentioned little richard uh earlier on in our conversation and uh, i never thought i'd meet little richard but um we did on the morrissey tour and it happened to be the night the first night we played the Hollywood Bowl, we came back to our hotel on Sunset Strip, and there he was having a drink in the bar. So it's just like, okay, fine. So, you know, the, these things are surreal, but it happened. So I'm trying to organize everything. Okay, what happened and when did it happen? And just put it down it, as a book-length memoir just for anybody who might be interested Partly just because the music industry's changed so much, you know. Yes. If you can believe it. You know, most of my touring I did in the era before Satnav. <laughs> so you had you, you had have? a very thumbed A to Z of London, didn't you, with Post and Night Stick? Well, not that. London. That, that's the thing. You, you're trying to negotiate. Um, you're on the outskirts of Hamburg, and there are maybe twenty different autobahn exits for Hamburg, uh, mm. and you you've had a conversation down the phone with uh, the promoter and he said, well, you take this and then after the 15th set of traffic lights, you'll see a garage and then you turn left and then you go three straight. And it's like early evening in winter, so it's dark and you're trying to read your scribbled what you've written down and this is how you find the venue, basically. So we would spend forever just circling around going the wrong way around one-way systems and desperately trying to find the club. And then once Satnav came in, suddenly touring is just, just programming the address. And then you can fall asleep in the back of the van and the driver's just following the Satnav. So, so many things about touring in the era before before mobile phones. You know, yes. We've, we've had crashes on the motorway, literally. If, I don't know if you've ever lost a wheel from a transit uh, while doing 80 miles an hour on, on the M4. We did that in the gallon drunk days. One of these things where you see that wheel 
<laughs> spinning ahead of you down the motorway and you're slewing around across three lanes of traffic trying to get across to the uh, hard shoulder without hitting anything. And then, of course, you're stuck and you've got no way of telling the venue for tonight that you're just sitting around on the side of the road while somebody's gone walking looking for any kind of a phone to phone the AAA. So you're going to be monstrously late for the gig, but you can't tell anybody. And mobile phones, they not only help you call the AA, but they help you call the promoter. And so my a lot of what's in my tour diaries, the world isn't like that anymore, you know, completely. It's a world where people actually bought records, where people went to small gigs and paid money at the door. And uh, it's where John Peel could play your records, for instance, where there was a thing called Top of the Pops or, or whatever whatever else it was. So uh, that's my main impulse to write it down, is just to say, here's this vanished world, and this is what it was like from my end of, end of things. Yes, and have you, have you experienced, because um, there's been quite a few people have been bringing out books. I remember the Shend from The Very Thing yeah, and yeah. the Cravats, he's just brought his book out, and I just yes, wondered I if you've been starting to sort of go, oh, that's interesting, I better go and have a quick read. And I just wondered, or have you thought, no, I'm just no. going to focus on no, mine? No, I, I, I didn't. I mean, I've known Shend for... 30 odd years uh, and uh, I didn't know I didn't know he was doing a book until a couple of months before he put it out um, but no I've, I've been I've been planning to turn my tour diaries into into a book for quite a few years now uh, and uh, I wouldn't actually read someone else's memoir particularly somebody of my generation because um, if something is good, you you unconsciously there's the danger you, that you uh, absorb some of it and start uh, replicating it. Uh, I'd rather just write it, write my own thing in a way that seems natural to me. Um, I mean, I've read a lot of people's music memoirs over the years, um, and uh, there's ways of there's all sorts of ways of doing it. Uh, Nicky, my mate, uh, Nicky Sutton, he, he wrote a great one just before he died. It didn't actually come out until after he died. And that's really worth, uh, uh, that's really worth reading. Yes. Um, but oh. I, no, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't read anybody's uh, current one. Uh, but this, this has been bubbling under for a long time. And I, I knew, I think, I think it's because the first thing I ever did touring-wise was to fly halfway around the world with Nicky to, to play. And I thought, well, I've got to go. There. I've got to write this down because I may never come back to Japan again. Yes. In the end, I did with the Flaming Stars, but I didn't know that at the time. And I've always been a huge fan of um, Ian Hunter's great, uh, great book, uh, Diary of a Rock and Roll Star, which is his diary of the first, I think it was the first Mott the Hoople tour of America. Uh, came out in 73 or 74. Maybe the tour was 73, the book came out in 74. And I've had that for decades. And it, what I, lo what I always loved about it, it really puts you in the middle of the action. He's just writing down what, what they're doing every day. And uh, so that's why I was obsessively writing everything down I, and photographing everything and keeping... I've got posters, I've got um, flyers... Uh, uh, you know, backstage passes. 
the flyers are good because if you pick up a flyer from, say, the Derby Warehouse and you can see, all right, here's us playing for three quid and uh, who else is playing that month? And it's it's nice because uh, there's people who would then go on to become much, much bigger than we ever were. Uh, but they're playing in front of the same 100 people. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, if it, whereas if you... Uh, if you have, if you were to rely on what might be in, available in the British Library, for instance, the uh, I don't know if you ever went through the the newspaper stacks at uh, Collindale, you know, the, the, all of their music papers and stuff. They've got huge gaps, basically. They, they I think 1973 or 74, half that year is missing, and that's the national collection, basically. All this stuff was seen as ephemera, and most people chucked it away. Um, mm. so it, it, I I never did uh, I, I thought well if we've come to wherever Stockholm or whatever and we're doing a show then let's write down the name of the venue and uh, the fact that the support band is from Finland and uh, uh, you know and the, the venue is called Fritz's Corner for some reason it's in Stockholm but it's called Fritz's Corner um, so Excellent. Does that um, does that mean you've got a publisher lined up as well? For this one, uh, I mean, I've I've uh, my last few books have been with the same publisher, and then the previous few books were with the same publisher. And uh, but something like this, I would write the book first, and then give it to my agent and say, uh, okay, can you waive that? At whoever might be interested, and uh, um, because it's. It's better, rather than trying to describe what it's going to be, this one I'd rather write it and then say, OK, can you get me a deal for it? Yes. Faber and Faber would be amazing, wouldn't it? That'd be just... Well, I don't know, Faber and Faber seem to do a lot of music books, so... That's they the... do, yeah. I, I think it depends, because... Um, it depends what you're selling a book on. Uh, I mean, with me, I'm, I wouldn't be selling it on, you know, hey, look at me. I'm famous because basically I'm not. Um, I would be selling that book on the fact that um, I've done all these things and here, here is a view from inside that world over the years and all these things happening and it's a sort of an eyewitness thing but it's not, um, they're not, you know, that somebody like Faber or whatever is unlikely to sight unseen say okay we can sell it on your name because they you know they couldn't i was i was once i spent about a year trying to get a book off the ground about screaming jay hawkins and my uh, publisher shopped that around this is about 20 years ago pretty much all the big uk publishers and we got a unanimous answer for them and you know what the answer was you're gonna love this not enough people have heard of Screaming Jay Hawkins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's that's it. That in terms of music publishing, if you're going to sell it on the name, then you'd better be um, somebody who sold millions. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, well, never mind. Uh, and even those books, some of them don't actually sell or sell frighteningly less than anyone would would think because... Somebody might have a big name, but the end result is just not that interesting. You know, it's an interesting life, but it has not, for whatever reason, translated into an interesting book. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's tricky. So look, just... Oh, Jawbone. They're a good publisher. i just come across them recently. They, they, they seem to bring out a lot of good publishers. But, so I know, just a bit of a boring one, this, but if you were able to tell your 16 or 18-year-old self some sort of bit of advice or some worldly wisdom, mm. is there something that you would have thought, yeah, I would have just whispered that? They might have ignored it, but at least I would have just said, you know, this is worth it. It's not, yeah. I mean, just wondered if there was any particular thing that you'd have thought, either, yes, do that or don't do that, mating. I think the um, the best one, and I've I've seen it from various people in the music game over the years, um, is some sort of variation on just um, don't don't give up, basically, and also um, don't let anyone push you around. I've seen too many good bands go into studios and come out having been cleaned up. You know, you, you'll have seen them play a, in, a, in, a, in a club, and you just think, God, that's really exciting. And then the, the result is just tame when it comes out, because the record company, and they've gone in thinking, oh, the record company, they're, they're, they're big, they must know what they're talking about. And they say, oh, we need to do this to make it here, or oh, we need that. Don't, you know, just stand up for yourself, basically. Have confidence and go basically just it's the punk DIY aesthetic um, go your own way and don't take any don't take any shit off anybody yes you, you don't have to go around being obnoxious to people but just have confidence in yourself essentially because I think some of my favourite people in music and in life were you know they were not going to be dressed up in a comedy suit by a manager or a, or a photographer or a record company, because that was what was uh, the trendy thing that week. You know, all oh, lads wear this because that you need to do that to get on. No, you don't. Uh, we were once doing a photo session in, in, in Detroit in Gallandrung, uh with very very nice photographer, very good photographer, and um, for one of the major American magazines. And in Gallandrung, everybody we just. You know, same with Flame Stars, same with the other sort. You just wear, you know, those bands look like that because that's what everyone in the bands wore, you know. That's what you wore on the street. That's who you were. Um, there was no plan. There was no uh, uniform. And this person taking uh, photographs of us just go, uh, oh, uh, just casually, do you guys work with a stylist? <laughs> and, uh, and she meant it as a compliment. And uh, we'd been on tour for the best part of two months. We were absolutely ragged at that point. We hadn't eaten properly or slept. And we were just essentially leaning against a wall because it was about all we were capable of. And um, and I always remember what James, uh, the singer, said. And he didn't say it nastily, but he just said, I'd rather eat dog shit than work with a stylist. And I think, yeah, those are, those are your choices in life. Um, don't work with a stylist. Don't eat dog shit. Don't <laughs> jump. Don't jump through the hoops that the industry. And it's the same. It's the same with. I mean, I've I've written. I mean, the book I'm finishing at the moment is my tenth, and most of those have been with reasonable sized publishers. You know, some some of the big publishers. And uh, uh, yeah, you've always got battles to fight. You know, they might want to put this on the cover that. 
makes it look completely destroys what your book is actually about. You've got to stand up for yourself, essentially. Um, and so that that would be the and, and luckily, because you said it's advice to my sixteen or eighteen year old self. Luckily, because um, that was my era when I'd just heard the first Ramones album and I'd been to see X-ray Specs when O Bondage had first come out. You know, that was their first single and. I saw them in front of 50 people in a little hall, half-empty hall in uh, Portsmouth. I'd read one review in the NME, just a short, uh, um, uh, you know, live review. And I thought, well, they sound interesting, London punk band, why not? And they were just a revelation, just doing, you could tell they were doing what they wanted to do. And they were the same age as me. And that's, that's all the inspiration you need. It doesn't have to be somebody older or somebody who knows best. Uh, it, it, you might have it inside yourself to just uh, do something that that you want to do. And if the rest of the world doesn't like it, well, who cares? Yes. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it for the money. I, I, one of the most depressing things was uh, Bros coming along in the mid '80s uh, with something called "When Will I Be Famous." The world has been eaten alive by when will I be famous uh, since then. You know, people who people are famous for being famous. People are thrilled to be on the Internet or on television just because they're famous for being on the Internet. And uh, uh, whereas being able to say, I once interviewed uh, the trash man uh, a few years ago, the first ever gig in London, 50 years after Surfing Bird came out. They never played in London, and uh, great, great people, and uh, yeah, yes, they are the guys who wrote and recorded Surfing Bird. You know, that is, that's. It doesn't matter whether you ever made any money out of it. That's uh, something to be proud of for, for my money. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, and. We'll leave it there. But a massive uh, thanks to Max Deshane. Forgive me the uh, time for that interview. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show, as long as it's nice and positive. Otherwise, just don't bother. And also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. Again, I know, I feel like I'm repeating myself. Anyway, look, I've got a slight blocked nose. It's asthma, so I'm going to say goodbye. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>